Good morning, Rick. I can tell you're already in a good mood, which is a fun thing as we uh, get to dive into another chapter of First Timothy this morning. Yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling really good. I'm uh, uh, I got a good workout today. Ran into a couple of folks from uh, Autumn Ridge who are in the gym, and it's all. Uh, I run into a bunch of folks from Autumn Ridge uh, who are at the gym. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it's just it's just fun kind of starting out the day, having really awesome conversations um, with folks. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. There's so much that needs to be talked about. I don't have time to talk. I even preached too long on Sunday and had to apologize to kids ministry. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's so much to talk about. It's, I'm looking forward to the church family meetings that are coming up so we can carve out more time to be a little bit more slow, a little bit more methodical methodical, really engage in, a, in, in even more of a helpful way with questions that, that people have and, and really pertinent, relevant information. And I believe that this conversation today is going to contribute to that. Yeah, I'm pumped. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. We have a lot to talk about this morning, uh, both about the women in leadership topic that's Mm -hmm. been kind of a theme throughout this series, as well as just the specific focus on leadership in the church in general and Mm -hmm. the qualities of a leader. And, and, uh, you know, I think there is a buzz of people talking about Mm -hmm. not just this topic, but about First Timothy and what we're seeing from God's Word about these things. And we've got more questions that have been sent in on this particular chapter than uh, than almost any other other podcast episode we've done. Well, I'm 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 excited about that, but would you be surprised to hear me say that I think women in leadership is the third most interesting thing we're talking about in this series. Okay, what are the first two? The the first one is understanding the gospel. Like Paul, I think is just an incredible example of gospel fluency. Mm. Identifying the content of the gospel, understanding the implications, this is how we live in response to it under and then applying the gospel motivate motivation of the gospel. So I'm loving that. That's, for me, always the most interesting. The second most interesting thing is how to study the Bible for all it's worth. Yeah, That's really what we're doing. And then the context, then the the conversation, rather, about women in ministry is the context for the other two, which Mm -hmm. I think are far more interesting. All are significant, all super important. Totally understand why the topic of of women and leadership and ministry is top of people's minds and the most obvious to a lot of people. But from my perspective, it's three. Mm-hmm. It's number. It's number three. I, I understand that, and it does seem like this topic is giving us an opportunity, almost as a case study, for how we study the Bible. Ooh, great way to describe that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and how we see the gospel playing out. Great imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. So I've been enjoying it from that aspect, and, okay. and I know you have too. I know this is something you've been studying for years now. For, for years, yeah. And and I shared I shared a little bit about that, and, and maybe through some of the questions that people are asking, I'll I'll share a little bit more. So how do you want to dive in today? I'm following your lead. Yeah. Well, we've got all kinds of really good questions, but I would love to start with one in particular uh, because it's coming from someone who is wrestling through this, um, coming from a background where the church that they had attended before taught uh, with with restrictions on women in leadership. That's my background. Uh, as is mine. I would have been one of those mm-hmm. pastors. Yeah. Well, and both of you and I came from that background ourselves and, and mm-hmm. taught that perspective. And I think and your background is way. shadier than mine, but yeah, we've got... <laughs> <laughs> you are well caffeinated this morning, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, but uh, and and both you and I have changed our perspective through deep study. Yes. Uh, but yes. But the the person writing this wonderful email mm-hmm. um, is wrestling through. What do I do with the leaders, the pastors, the voices that I trusted on yeah. this topic before? And I, I don't think that they intended to lead me astray in this, and yet there's an element of almost feeling that way, or feeling um, like a, a disoriented kind of confusion between mm-hmm. how did I, how do I trust what these voices had said yeah. in the past when they, I thought, arrived at, at their reasons for biblical reasons, and now we're arriving at this reason for biblical reasons, and, and there's just kind of a disorientation in that. Can you help us kind well, of as we're working that. through that? I feel that, and I, and I, had to, I had to live in that space for years. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. You I had can. to live in that space for years and, yes. and work through all of those emotions. I get it. First of all, what I, what I want to say is I, I appreciate this person honoring the motives and the intent of people in her past. And I want to say, I agree with you. Even if I don't know them, I'm pretty sure they're not trying to lead you astray. We're all placing ourselves underneath the authority of Scripture. Though we do so with imperfect understanding, we're doing our best to align with our best understanding of it. And we have to acknowledge that this is complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated for a lot of reasons. There are, uh, there are linguistic reasons that make it a bit complicated. There's historical and cultural uh, contextual issues that, that make it complicated. There's just our distance and time from what was going on. Difficulty really understanding um, what was going on in the church that make it complicated. Now, I think all of those factors can be mitigated and engaged and accounted for uh, so that we can come to understanding. I really do believe that understanding is always possible. Not always, not always easy. So let's just let's just acknowledge that this is hard. And when something is hard, people are going to see it differently. And let's just respect them and let's let's love them. And what I want to say to those people is, I appreciate you giving me the best of what you had. I have come to a place where I disagree with you, but I don't think you were trying to hurt me. I don't think you were trying to do me wrong. Um, I think you were giving me the best you had, and I appreciate that. And I now see it differently. Mm. Let's listen. No one is ever going to hear me publicly say anything negative about John Piper. John Piper is on the opposite side of the fence on this issue than I. He he's responsible for. Um, he's and he's one of a handful of men who's largely responsible for this. Really emerging the the view of restriction on women really kind of taking hold in American evangelical Christianity. I don't think it's the only thing that defines him. He and I just he and I just see that differently. One of the reasons that I'm a pastor today and in ministry today is because of John Piper. Mm. He played a huge role in my life and helping me fall, I mean just fall madly in love with God's word. Want to better understand God, better understand Jesus, better understand his word. There are a lot of people who say that they were at the at the event where he preached the famous seashells sermon mm-hmm. i was there really heather and mm-hmm. i were there with another couple uh, from our church we drove up uh to go to, to this event that was held at shelby farms in memphis tennessee mm-hmm. um 
And and he's it was just kind of like don't waste your life. You don't want to get to the end of your life and and just like you're just wasting your time counting sh- seashells. You know, flittering away. You know, this prime years. You want to give yourself to the kingdom. And that like he like grabbed a hold of my chest. Mm-hmm. I can remember where I was standing. I can remember the view of the stage. Wow. I can remember the sound of his voice. I can remember how heavy he was breathing as he as he talked about this. And God used that to really put a fire in my gut to want to serve in ministry. I am marvelously thankful for his incredible ministry and impact on my life. He and I see this differently. Mm-hmm. And so I can appreciate him and be thankful for him giving me the best that he had to offer. And at the same time, say, if I were, if I had the privilege of sitting across from him, sharing a cup of coffee, I'd say, John, thank you. This is an area where we disagree, but I'll always respect you and appreciate you. Mm-hmm. And so, if you if it just feels tumultuous and emotional, that's because that's just where you are in the journey, and that's okay. Give yourself time, and choose to see the best. Choose to see the best. Now, if those people gave you reasons to believe that they were trying to mislead you. Well, that's a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's what I don't think that's what we're talking about. That would be a very small number of people, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we're having to talk about in First Timothy is false teachers. Someone when a teacher te- says something that's false, that doesn't make them a false teacher. Now, this is this is where people think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. A false teacher is someone who has a Abandon the gospel, has abandoned the authority of God's word, abandoned the authority and the kingship of Jesus, and they are now peddling something else. Mm-hmm. And they can do that intentionally, or they can do that because they are deceived. But someone doing their best to submit to the authority of God's word and just misunderstanding the intended meaning and then preaching them their misunderstanding. That doesn't make them a false teacher. Yes, they're wrong, but they're not a false teacher. A false teacher is something totally different. Mm-hmm. I heard somebody say one time, a false teacher is someone who's trying to eat the sheep, not someone who annoys the sheep. <laughs> yeah, that's a helpful distinction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So I would just say, you're, you're, on this, you're on this process. What about, all the, what about people in the church who would just say, Rick, I'm not convinced. I, I'm still on the side of the fence where I think there should be restrictions. Um, well, I hope that they would relate to me in the same way. I hope they would say, Rick, I think you're giving me. I hope they'd give me the benefit of the doubt. I'd hope that they would believe, Rick, you're giving me the best that you that you have to give. Um, appreciate you. Love you. I just see it differently mm-hmm. than you. I would. I. I hope. I hope that's the kind of people that that we will be. And I think. By the power of God's Spirit working in us and, and working out the fruit of the Spirit and us really leading into the gospel, I think we can be, and I yeah. think we are. Yeah. You know, I don't want to make complete generalities here, but I'll speak at least from my own experience uh, when when I was um, heavily invested in a complementarian uh, way of thinking, mm-hmm. I wasn't really presented with any other view mm. or any other way of seeing things. If mm-hmm. anything, you know, the books that I read or the pastors that I listened to that were teaching on these things uh, didn't give both sides of the interpretation and, uh, and made it a comfortable thing to be able to see, you know, some people interpret scripture this way, some people interpret it this way, and you could make a choice. Mm-hmm. It often was more just one-sided and sometimes there is even a little bit of a fear element introduced of mm-hmm. this is what we believe is the correct interpretation, and it's 
possible that those who disagree are not taking scripture seriously. And so there was even a little bit of an element of fear of, I don't want to do anything that, uh, that would weaken or diminish my view of scripture yes. by seeing it in any other way. And so I think there are a lot of people oh, out there who just haven't been given another opportunity to consider this topic from a different angle. They haven't been given permission to think about it without being afraid. Mm-hmm. And Svea, you just described the way that I was raised and the way that I was educated, both in college and in seminary. I'm going to call it propaganda, and I'm not trying to be judgmental of people, but I will say this kind of communication style, it is propaganda. Um, you can't consider the other side. This is it. And if you budge an inch on on allowing women to lead or teach or exercise any sort of leadership or authority within the church, you are you're putting God's word in danger. You're putting the family in danger. You're putting our country in danger. You're putting evangelism in danger. You're putting the very faith in danger. Don't do it. Don't. I mean, that's fear mongering. Mm-hmm. Where I listen, faith doesn't faith doesn't squash questions and push down questions. Fear does that. Faith says, oh, "I trust Jesus. I have nothing to be afraid of." There's a reason there's 365 times in God's word that we're told not to be not to be afraid. I think mm-hmm. it's kind of kind of profound. Mm-hmm. So you just look at it. Well, well, what is the best that the other side has to offer? Well, let's look at it. And after you take in all the information, fully process it as best you can, and going through all the circles of context, understanding the language, history, culture, uh, literary context, all the things, then come to a conclusion. And if at the end of the day you disagree with somebody else, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's don't be afraid of facts and information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up in a culture that was a, that taught me to be afraid of that. And I had to, if I can relate to this person, I had to deal with anger. Mm. But the reason that the people taught me to be afraid is because people taught them to be afraid and people taught them to be afraid. And and I was just the next one in line to receive the same message that they received. And eventually somebody's got to raise their hand and go, but what about? Mm -hmm. And I want us, I want us to be the kind of church where people can raise their hand and say, but what about? Yeah. And we have nothing to be afraid of. We can trust we can trust Jesus. We can trust his word. There's no question we should be afraid of. So so I want to go a little bit deeper onto the idea of we can trust his word, because mm-hmm. another question that came in was written with um, maybe some healthy frustration at the difference in different Bible interpretations. And mm-hmm. so, you know, someone who's really wanting to just say, I want to be grounded in scripture, I want to take the Bible seriously, and is reading a verse that seems mm-hmm. like it is black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe comes to realize that, say, a translation such as the ESV is translated from a very, um, very identified uh, complementarian perspective, well, as opposed to other translations that may interpret the very same Greek words differently. Well, so, sure. The, the, the translation committee and some of the people who are behind launching the ESV translation, and, and this isn't a dig. I'm not trying to be critical. We're just talking about the facts of history here. Uh, they were uncomfortable. They they didn't like what they saw happening with the New International Version. Um, they were proponents of the term that they would use as complementarianism, and that's a that's a view that there should be restrictions on women and, and leadership and, and in teaching and the church. And they wanted a translation that they thought uh, supported that. And in their minds and hearts, they thought it accurately represented the, the intended meaning of the text. So the ESV was put together intentionally to convey that. So when you read the new, when, when you read the NIV, 
when you get to First Timothy chapter two, um, verse twelve, it says, "Assume authority." And it's because the translation committee was convinced that authentane was not a healthy expression of authority; that it was negative, and they're trying to convey that. Now, I think, I think, assume authority doesn't doesn't really land the way that they intended it to land. I think it loses its punch with them with a lot a lot of people. I don't think people understand. Oh, that's negative. Um, they just they think it would be appropriate for one to assume, but not for for others. And really, that kind of word is it's inappropriate for any follower of Christ to to authenticate. Um, so NIV says assume. Uh, ESV says exercise authority. King James version says usurp authority. Mm-hmm. And so whatever. I, listen, I don't want to come down hard. I don't want to condemn people. I can understand frustration. I have frustrations too. Translation is hard. You cannot do translation without also doing interpretation. Mm-hmm. Every time you're doing a translation, you're doing interpretation. Let me give you a quick example. Svea, if I said, you are a boss, what do I mean? Are you a supervisor or are you awesome? Well, I'd like to think I'm both. But. Sure. Yeah. You need context. Yeah. You look at that statement in context, and then if you were translating this from English into Spanish, you would you would take that statement in context, mm-hmm. and um, then you would use the equivalent Spanish word for what you thought boss was trying to communicate. You would not just translate boss, mm-hmm. because if you thought that I would, if you thought the intended meaning was a compliment, Svea, I think you're awesome. Svea, you're a boss. Well, you're going to translate it that way. So you're doing interpretation and translation at the same time. If you thought I was just simple declared effect, say you're a boss. You can, you know, you can relate to this. You can relate to leadership. You're a boss. Well, then you would do the equivalent Spanish word um, for supervisor, manager, boss. Mm-hmm. We do that all the time. We do that all the time when we're telling stories. We do it all the time in conversation. It's normal in translation. Translators have to make a decision. They are. It is not simply, here's one word, find the equivalent word, plug it in. It is That is not what's happening in translation. Translation is more comp- complex than that. We have every reason to be confident in what we read. There are some... There are, there are a handful, not many, there are a handful of places in the New Testament where like, oh... It's helpful to understand the framework from which the translation committee is coming and why they chose the word that they did. I think all of them have good motives, but they're doing interpretation while they're doing translation. Mm-hmm. That's just that's so an do you un- have inescapable fact. Any pastoral advice for someone who's saying, boy, I just didn't even realize the layers of complexity in choosing a certain Bible translation. How, how does one go about choosing the translation that uh, maybe is going to uh, help them navigate some of these things better than others? Uh, well, one, I would just say, I always start with this. Pick a translation that makes sense to you. It, language is always evolving. The English language is is evolving. We were we were talking yesterday about the use of the word they, and it's becoming, mm-hmm. it's beca- it's, is it becoming accepted in academic writing to use they yeah, in the rather singular? Yeah, clunky he or she. That's right. Just to use they so, even in singular writing. And if people feel uncomfortable with that, I get it. Um, I am a two spaces after a period. Guy. <laughs> it's I was, so annoying. I was, raised, I was raised with that. I refuse to stop. <laughs> I refuse to stop. And anybody who tries to make me do it, they get out of my face. I'm not, I'm two spaces after a period. What is it now? 
it's, it's one space it's, rick rules change right i'm not changing but <laughs> I'm, t- I'm standing on the easy side of the window on this one <laughs> all right so i'm i i, I I'm, I'm a two spaces guy rules change in in language when language becomes inflexible and it stops changing its rules and it stops evolving that language dies Mm-hmm. So living languages evolve and change. Um, languages that stop die. Um, Koine Greek is a dead language, and this is a beautiful thing because it's not evolving. We can keep studying. We can keep studying all kinds of uh, documents. We study documents. Uh, we study uh, inscriptions. Uh, we and there are thousands and thousands of documents. And so we've got thousands and thousands of documents and, and fragments of documents and manuscripts of the New Testament. And so. We got all kinds of letters from church fathers, and we got all kinds of political letters and and normal correspondence, and we got I mean all kinds of uh, exciting and super mundane things to look at. That our insight is constantly improving, mm-hmm. even though we get further away from it in time. Our insight into that language is constantly improving. So, how does someone pick a Bible translation? Number one, just pick the one that thinks that. Sometimes I just talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> and my wife would say, that's because you're not a good listener. <laughs> I apologize. Um, so uh, number one, just pick the one that makes the most sense to you. Um, and so the, one of the reasons we have so many translations is because language is evolving. And so pick the translation that makes the most sense to you. I think it's going to be easy if you use the translation that is most widely used in your church. That's just that's just going to be. It is comfortable to have it match when you're reading it in your lap when it's the same thing that's being spoken or or read. And, and we use NIV. We use yeah. We use NIV. in general. I'm not here. married to it forever. We could we could change, but that's that's what we're using right now. That's the way. That's what Autumn Ridge was using, and uh, not not really feeling the need to to, to update that right now. Um, here's another thing to do, especially if you use your phone. Read different translations. Read the King James. Read the New American Standard. And also understand this. There are different theories behind translation. And you're just going to have to give yourself a little bit of time. If you want to, you got to dig in and read. So something like the New American Standard is more of a word-for-word. There are word-for-word translations, which means that there are times it's going to be really wooden and clunky and mm-hmm. hard to understand. Because they're trying to give as close a translation to the original Greek word or the original Hebrew word. To the, to the word. Mm-hmm. To the word. Uh, to the words that were used. Then there are translations that are thought for thought. And then there are translations that are more of a paraphrase. Right? So like the message is like the most like extreme example of a of a paraphrase, the New Living Translation, I call a phraselation. It's kind of a kind of a paraphrase. I think the best translations are somewhere on the spectrum in between, thought for thought and word for word. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're translating a legal document, maybe word for word is what's most important. But when you're telling a story, where you're trying to convey truth. Thought for thought, I think, tends to tends to win out. And mm-hmm. the goal is to find the meaning of the thought, not necessarily, not necessarily what is the equivalent word. And so, every translation committee is is working is working on is working on that and dealing with that. There are a lot of factors involved in it. Uh, don't be discouraged that it's that it's complicated. I think what we should do is feel appreciative for all the people who are working hard. Uh, to study language and culture and and providing this incredible resource that we have. 
So we've got a, uh, a great small group leader who is working hard to study this passage and someone who is paying attention to a lot of detail mm-hmm. in First Timothy chapter 3 and noticed that there are three different places in this chapter where either women or wives are referred to. Two places they're referred to as wives, one place it's the women, mm-hmm. and wondering if there's any significance to that. And there then is a correlation to that while you're while you're warming up your thoughts here. Mm-hmm. Um, in the message, you really focused in on the qualifications for leaders as elders. Yeah. And we touched briefly on deacons. Yes. But uh, this person also astutely noticed that in verse 11, it mm-hmm. says, in the same way, the women. The women, Almost yeah. implying like it's an entirely different category. Yes. So speaking of translation and all of that, do you yeah. want to speak to the translation of the word wives and women? Let me do my best to share, uh, to, to speak into that uh, without being too long-winded and nerdy and boring. Um, the Greek word for for women and wife is the same. And that's a bit frustrating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, in English, we don't have that. Um, it's, there's like five or six words for love in Greek. It, it, Greek has all, I, it can be highly specific and nuanced. But in this one, it's frustrating. Wife and woman is the exact same. And there is significance to that. Um, and this is something for us to get into in our church family meetings. So we go back to, to chapter two, when Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exer- I'm not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He's gone from plural to singular. And then when he goes back to talk about childbirth, he goes to plural again. Mm-hmm. And scholars debate, a translation committees debate, should we translate that wife or woman, mm-hmm. and here's the significance of that. I don't think it. I don't think it tra- changes the meaning of the text. But there are smarter people than me that would say it might. So, if you've read a book on that, maybe go with that. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not saying trust me over over who you read, but um, but it. So one of the things scholars say is, could it be that Paul is going from talking to women to talking to a particular woman, and he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean woman, he means wife. And here's the deal, man and husband is the same word. Mm-hmm. It's the same way. So could he be going from, could he be talking about um, wife and husband? It's challenging. There are times it's challenging to know, is this is this just woman or is it a wife? And because he goes from plural to singular and then back to plural, scholars debate this. Could he have had a particular person in mind that he was addressing? And Timothy knew exactly who he was talking about. But remember, this is a publicly read letter. He didn't want to shame or embarrass that person by naming them. Mm. That's a possibility. And if that's the case, this certainly is not even a temporary restriction on women. It is about a particular woman and what she needs at that time. And so there, there are a lot of things to look at. Now we go jump over into chapter chapter three. Does it mean women or does it mean wives? Scholars disagree. Mm-hmm. Translation committees disagree. Some people read it as, well, this is just talking about the wives of the deacons. And so the wives of the deacons, they, they, you know, they need to be in the game too um, because you're, it's possible for a spouse to ruin their spouse's ministry. Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, if you could have a spouse who's to, man or woman who's doing 
his or her best, their best. <laughs> you can have a man <laughs> or woman doing his or her best uh, to honor Jesus and engage in ministry. And for whatever reason, his or her spouse is on the struggle bus and is gossiping, is um, undermining their ministry, maybe out of their woundedness, maybe out of anger, maybe out of immaturity or whatever. And it could just blow up that man or woman's ministry. Mm-hmm. We probably could tell stories about that. We won't, but we could. <laughs> I could tell stories about that, um, but I but but I but I won't. Um, and so scholars debate: Is it that sort of thing? Hey, deacons, your wives need to kind of be on the rails and in the game too. Mm-hmm. Or is it saying, hey, women also in the same way, women in general, this applies to you. The same expectations, uh, the same privileges and expectations apply to you. And so that's that's part of the that's part of the nuance. I think it's a I think it's a I think it's a good good and fun debate to have. The poor Apostle Paul is going to be so busy with all these questions of <laughs> what did you mean by that word? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I'm going to stand in line on that one. I think I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go enjoy something else. So, do you want to know what I think? Sure. Okay. I I don't think he's talking about wives. I think he's talking. We got to remember this. We think when we we think titles, and I get it. I'm a pastor. You're a pastor. Maybe people out there listening, you're a teacher, you're a surgeon, um, you're a manager, you're a, you're a sales associate, you're, you're a whatever, right? But we, we, we communicate in titles. The New Testament authors, especially the, the, the Apostle Paul and Peter, because they're really the two guys who are, who are writing about this um, the most, they're always emphasizing responsibility. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, I mean, I mean, some of the things Jesus said, let no one call you you know, father or teacher, um, it's Jesus emphasized the role that you play in taking on a position of humility. The way that Paul and Peter write about those who possess leadership positions in the church are drastically different than the way that things like that were approached in first century culture. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of esteem, there was a lot of honor. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of privilege. There was a lot of kind of self centeredness, um, and that was celebrated. It was virtuous as you climbed the ranks um, in government, as you climbed the rank in uh, voluntary voluntary association groups. That was normal. Um, even in synagogues, they used the term president. Um, and by the way, men or women could be president of a of a synagogue in the first century. But in the New Testament, they are painstaking. Uh, and in the, their efforts to emphasize responsibilities over titles. So I say all of that to say this. Paul's talking about those who are who are managers of of the of the household, um, overseers. Um, and remember their their house churches. And by the way, do you know who is the manager of that of, of most first century houses? Women. Women were managing the household. Um, you want a great kind of example of what we're talking about? Read Proverbs 31, although that's well before the first century, and that's not Roman culture, but that's a great example of what that looked like. Buying and selling property, overseeing servants, cooking, I mean, um, all kinds of domestic affairs, all kinds of business affairs. You see all that sort of thing was 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 normal. Um, when you read in Titus, keepers at home doesn't mean just stay home and mind your business. Homes were very public affairs, centers of business. There's a lot of leadership and, and managing, overseeing going on. Um, 
within within the home and very common for for wives and women to lead the way in that um so overseer emphasizing responsibility deacon emphasizing responsibility it appears in this church at ephesus that there is a group of women who are it's not necessarily a title it's not necessarily a well-defined position in the church but they're exercising service and ministerial leadership um I've seen this when I go to the third world. It's very common in third world churches, especially when I was in India, uh, for unmarried women, uh, for widows, that they that they led in prayer ministry and other kinds of ministry in the church. That was like their, their full-time thing, but they weren't pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a high number of unmarried women in the church at Ephesus, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, and it appears that maybe the term widow was used to describe a kind of office that was kind of like deacon. And I think that Paul was addressing those women who were leading in ministries. Like he's talking about overseers, talking about deacons, and we know that there were men and women deacons. I think that there were men and women overseers too. I think Priscilla was an overseer. I think Nympha was an overseer. I think I think there were a number of women. Phoebe was identified as a deacon. Phoebe was mm-hmm. identified as, as a deacon. Um, I think Paul is addressing this other kind of group of ministry workers and ministry providers that were referred to as widow. I, I learned this from Sandra Glan that, hey, like, what word do we have in our language to describe um, a woman of married, maritable age? Mar- I'm struggling. Marriageable. Out. Marriageable, <laughs> marital age, uh, but she's not married. What word do we have for that? Do we have any honoring or even neutral words for that? I mean, old maid came to mind, well, but I'm that's not, saying, not honoring. Listen, or... I'm not saying the words. You said it. Sfea said that. Rick did not say that. Sfea said that. So, like, I, there's other word. There's, like, only one other word that I can think of, which I'm not going to say. Uh, <laughs> but, like, to describe someone in their 30s, 40s, 50s who's not married, we don't even have – we don't have no, a word. we don't word. have any positive associated We don't words. have a word to describe that mm-hmm. status, not in our language. Guess what? They didn't have it. In Greek either. You know what you would call a woman who has never been married? Maybe she's 35 years old. She's never been married. Do you know what you'd call And she's not married now. You know what you'd call her? A widow. A widow. Mm-hmm. I think that's who Paul's talking to. Mm-hmm. These these unmarried these unmarried women who probably... Well, we'll be able to get to that quite a bit more in chapter five. But I think, but that's, what's, I think that's what's happening. It's playing... Here. And I could be too. wrong. I could be totally wrong. I think that's what's going on. So two more uh, questions kind of related to some of the words, and then I want to direct us uh, mm-hmm. as, we, uh, as we wrap up more towards the qualities of leadership in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but a question came in on this idea of the disposition of being a one-woman man. Yeah. And, and you walked us through that, that what that idiom was getting to mm-hmm. was fidelity to one's spouse yeah. rather than um, – even in, I mean, obviously, it's also about only being married to one person <laughs> rather than that's being right. in a polygamous relationship. And so that's right. It's not just your it. You're you're right. It's not just anti polygamy, but it's utter fidelity in marriage. Mm-hmm. But the question was, what about someone who's been married? Previously, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is personal in my own life. My husband served as an elder here at this church, but his first wife died mm-hmm. before he married me, and uh, and I know that was something that was discussed by some people about did he qualify because he had been married to, to two different women. Now 
obviously one at a time. <laughs> uh, yeah. But he had had two wives in that sense. Um, and that one's a little bit easier, especially when we're just talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the priority here is is faithfulness, and mm-hmm. he's been faithful to his spouses. Love mm-hmm. you, Steve. Uh, but, uh, but what about the case of someone who's been divorced before? Because this phrase has often been used to eliminate the qualifications of someone who has been divorced. Yeah. Well, can I backtrack a little bit? Sure. Um, there is a perspective that some people hold that would eliminate Steve, um, and it would also eliminate you mm-hmm. from ministry. I'm not persuaded by those arguments, um, but they would say that even if your spouse passed away and you become a widow or a widower, um, you cannot remarry and be in ministry. You can be in ministry if you don't remarry, but you can't re remarry. Uh, Bart Barber is a guy who holds that per- perspective. He's the he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I'm not persuaded. I think he seems like a good dude. I'm just not persuaded uh, by that by that viewpoint. And I think it's fair to call that an extreme minority view. Uh, doesn't mean it's wrong. I'm just not persuaded. And it's an extreme minority view. Um, when we talk about divorce, this is... Um, this is a messy one. And I got to tell you, my first reaction is to want to recoil and run away. <laughs> uh, but some dummy came up with the idea that uh, we should move towards the messes. So, Well, we even call this the church's messy podcast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Double whammy. <laughs> We're not afraid to talk about messy things, right? We're not afraid to talk. We're not afraid to talk about messy things. There are, and let me just say this again. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, there are really good-hearted, brilliant, Jesus-loving people, people-loving people, uh, who have different views on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have a bit of a softer view. I could be wrong. I have a bit. I have a bit of a softer view. Um, it's hard to create a policy because so many of these stories are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Stories of divorce are very different. And I think too many people um, have think that the Bible's view of divorce is maybe narrower than it is because of Jesus's one conversation with the Pharisees that we have recorded. That's not all that the Bible has to say about divorce. If you go back to the Old Testament, which definitely would have been inspired by Jesus because he's God, and uh, what he would have been in his thinking when he talks about divorce is that, you know, um, you could be... Uh, divorce was permissible for abandonment, mm-hmm. failing to uh, failing to meet uh, a woman was permitted to divorce her husband, especially um, if it was a polygamous situation, um, if he was not intimate with her. So the biblical viewpoint of of, of marriage and divorce really is love-oriented and what's in the best interest of folks. The Apostle Paul talked about, you know, listen, if somebody, if you if you become a follower of Christ and your spouse is not a follower of Christ, you're not going to leave them. But if they leave, if they don't want to be with you anymore, it's you can let them go. It's okay, right? And so when I read, when I read the text, I see, I see God's heart for people. I see his hatred for divorce. And I think it's a hatred for the divorce in the same way that we hate cancer because of what it does to people. Um, and I see 
I see tremendous love and empathy for people. Jesus's engagement with the Pharisees, he was really, I, he was hitting them hard. I mean, he was punching them in the face for their, their twisting of the concession that Moses gave them for divorce because they were really using it to exploit, to exploit women. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to know a little bit more. I want to know what was going on. Man or woman, were you in an abusive situation? Were you really being, were you abandoned? Um, where um, were you cheated on? Was that was the covenant broken? Um, these these are these are Maybe things. Is this something that happened before you were a follower of Jesus? Is this something? Yeah. Is this something that happened before you were a follower of Jesus? And here's the deal: somebody might say, "But none of those things say that in the text." You are right. Mm-hmm. You are absolutely right. That's where wisdom comes in. We got to use our wisdom. We're going to use a biblically informed imagination. We're going to take the, the truth of God's word. We're going to take the the heaping amounts of wisdom that it gives us and we're going to think through scenarios and we're trying to we're trying to see it through the through the lens of Jesus. The one of the reasons we study the Bible, the main reason we study the Bible is to better know Jesus. The goal isn't to better know the Bible. The goal is to better know Jesus. And the better we know Jesus, the better through studying the Bible, the better we're going to understand how Jesus would want us to respond mm-hmm. in a situation. So I'm just trying to be slow, measured. I want to be wisdom-oriented. Don't want to make a policy. But let's say there's a person who's divorced, and they, they're divorced it's a, because they were, they were harsh and exploitative, and um, they have some unresolved, unrepented, just deep wounds that they've that they've received and they've caused through their approach to that relationship. Probably not a good idea. Probably not a good idea to put them in that in that place of leadership. Mm-hmm. So let's transition to the qualities of leadership because mm-hmm. that was really the emphasis of the message. Did you feel stung and, at all? Oh, it is hard not to read a list like that and feel inadequate. Yeah. I was thinking about that about you. I was like, man, Sarah's going to be. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, wow. I no. There were. Uh, I talked about uh, you never give the leftovers. I shared this with my small group last night. Um, I won't get into my whole story, uh, but I I I have a uh, I have a lot. I've got dad wounds. I've got a lot of I've got a lot of insecurity, and there's something in me that wants to earn being enough. Mm-hmm. And there's something in me that just really longs, especially for men that I respect, to tell me that I'm doing a good enough job, uh, to tell me that I'm enough. It's so I have a tendency, there. I have a massive vulnerability to being a workaholic and giving everything that I've got mm-hmm. to my work. Mm-hmm. And it, not just because I love Jesus and love people, but because I'm trying to, because I can't get off the devil, devil's carousel. I'm just chasing this unattainable oh, sense of that. That, that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And there's too, there are too many moments in my life where I went home and I gave, I gave my wife and kids the leftovers. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm doing that now, but I know, I know it's easy for me to do that. Yeah. So no, I understand that. Yeah. What would you say to someone who is looking through that list of, of qualifications, the dispositions, the character qualities of leadership, mm-hmm. and is saying, boy, I want these things to be true of me, and mm-hmm. I just feel like I'm falling short? How, how can you help us to climb out of the, the sense of just feeling overwhelmed by it and actually get some traction in this yeah. and well, grow in our sanctification here? You're a follower of Jesus. Remember, the Spirit of God is, is trying to remind you right now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? So don't beat yourself up. Don't, 
don't embrace the lies of shame, okay, rebuff, re- remind yourself of the gospel of who you're fully loved, fully accepted. You are enough in Christ. All right. So you got to remember that because that's what gives you the ability to look in the mirror and go, well, you know what? Um, I'm not as sober minded. I'm not as... I'm, I'm not level-headed. I, I let my emotions get the best of me and I let my ego get the best of me. I got some work to do there. I want to lean into that. Or um, I don't have a heart for the stranger. I am not hospitable. Mm. Um, hmm. I got some work to do there. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, mm-hmm. and then do as Jesus did. So good. Yeah. Remember... Remember authority, identity, activity, right? Oh man, I just I just want to be with him. Mm-hmm. And he is my authority. I want to know him and I just want to submit to, to his word and his way. Mm-hmm. And I okay, and I'm gonna remember I am listen, I am defined by what he has done mm-hmm. for me, not what I do. And I want to be more like him. And so and so now I, I want to love other people the way that he has loved me. I want to to live my life the way that he lived his life. I want to live my life as though he's living his life through me. So I'm going to focus on that. I'm not going to start with beating myself up. I'm not going to start with willpower. I'm not going to start with just trying harder, although effort's important. It comes out of of my relationship with Jesus. And I, I just want to remind us of this, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. It's the Spirit's fruit. And it comes by walking with him, mm. by surrendering to him. And he produces this in us. So we're not going to produce it ourselves. We're not the ones who are in control, but we contribute through our personal devotion and relationship with Jesus. going to be with him, become more like him, and then do as, do as he did. So if that's you, that's what you do. And guess what? It takes time. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not overnight, is it? It's not. And yet it takes time and then reveals something so beautiful over mm-hmm. time when we see how God's been at work in our life mm-hmm. to, to help us become more like Christ. It'll, it'll happen slower than you want, but faster than you think. Mm. Well said. May it be so. Mm-hmm.